0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, December the 4th, 2020. This is episode 2786 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for a listener council Q&A show. And I've got a good lineup for you today. Here's what we have Doctor Ken Berry on finding a new doctor, one that thinks a little bit more, well, I should say a little bit less um, in in line with the establishment. One open to things like the ketogenic diet. It's not going to tell you you're going to die by using a diet that really is the proper human diet. Uh, Dealing with breech birth from Doc Bones. We're going to talk about. We'll have the two doctors up first today. And then we have a grab bag of handyman and business starting questions being answered by Tim the Toolman Cook. We have maintenance and items to watch for in a high mileage used diesel truck from Derek Bonpietro. And then no one to hold them, no one to sell them. Stocks, that is, with John Pugliano. Then I've got one about fuel storage for a generator. I think the guy asking the question doesn't actually have the problem that he thinks he does, and he's trying to meet... A milestone that I gave you guys as far as fuel storage and I'll explain why that number of 60 gallons of stored fuel is the number that I picked and why it may not really apply here and what can be done to mitigate a situation where you can't just really have 12 cans of gasoline sitting around. I'll give you a couple different ideas for that because this while this gentleman's situation is somewhat specific the concept of gas storage for people who have apartments, townhouses, small lots, etc., is uh, is one that's pretty universal, and I've heard various uh, need to discuss uh, quite a few times over the 12 years I've been doing the Survival Podcast. Uh, before we dig into that, let's start off with a quote of the day today. This one came from a listener. And I'm sorry, I got real busy today and uh, picked the quote, but I don't remember the name of the listener. But thank you for sending it in. And you guys send me questions and stuff like that all the time. If you, if you have quotes you think would be good for quote of the day, you can always suggest those. Same thing you do with, an e- uh, with a question, just email it to me. Jack at the dot com and TSPC in the subject line. And if it's a quote, you might want to put TSPC quote. This one I really liked and it really fits today in a bunch of ways. Uh, specifically, it fits my Miyagi morning video that went out this morning, uh, out on Odyssey Library YouTube, etc. Because I talked about starting a business, and I'll save thoughts on that for later to go along with uh, Derek. Uh, I'm sorry, Tim Toolman Cooks segment today. But Teddy Roosevelt once said, far and away, the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. That's interesting to me. It really is. To work hard at work worth doing. There's so many people that work so hard, but they don't feel that their work that they do is worth doing. And I'd say you've got to balance that. It, it may not be. It may not be in general. It may not be fulfilling. It may not be something that does much for you spiritually and emotionally. And you may want to find other work to do. Because a lot of times we when we have a job, especially a job that we don't get a lot of fulfillment from, all harder work gets us is nothing. There are jobs where working harder and, and meritocracy takes over and it gives you advancement opportunities and things like that. But there are jobs that you can literally work twice as hard as everybody else and not really get anywhere. And that's one of the reasons I like merit based employment or business. So that's why I spent most of my life in sales and marketing. Sales always has a direct correlation with commission, incentives, etc. But most marketing gigs, uh, if, if, even if they don't come stock that way, they can be negotiated to, hey, let's create an incentive compensation component to what I do. Because to me, that, that truly rewards you financially, but does it reward you spiritually and emotionally. I, I had a pretty good life before I started TSP. Honestly, had I stayed doing what I was doing, I'd probably be making more money than I make now. Not that I make a bad living or anything, but I mean, if it was just pure economic gain. But I didn't get a lot of fulfillment out of what I was doing. In fact, I was becoming miserable and sick and not a good husband and not a good man. So I decided to do something different 12 years ago. And now I get to work hard at work worth doing. And I think what people often miss with a statement like this is the understanding of the the true nature of work as it rewards us beyond filling our bellies and our bank accounts. If we don't have work as beings to do, we tend to become unhappy. We really do. We become unhappy. I, I know people who are on some form of disability or whatever and they're afraid to do anything because they might lose it. And they pretty much sit around doing nothing day in and day out. None of them are happy. They'll some of them actually pretend to be happy. I got it made. Really? You know? What most people end up doing if they don't have to work is they still find work to do. Whether they putter around their little homestead and do work there, whether they go out and do charity work. No matter what, they find something to do. Like I've even found people that have become immensely successful financially. And I'm sure if you examined lottery winners who did not destroy their lives and go broke in five years, uh, you'd get the same type of thing. And people that I know that become financially well-off from actually doing something, they end up up having some work that they do. I even know one gentleman. He's worth about $60 million. I've known him for a very long time. He, He and I go back as acquaintances from when I was selling services to Mark Cuban, when Mark Cuban was still running Broadcast.com. In fact, it was AudioNet when I, when I first met uh, the gentleman by the name of Patrick, who was part of that whole thing and cashed in big time. He still works every day. He doesn't have to. And this guy's a hell of a dude. He's not working out of greed. I mean, this guy's adopted multiple special needs children, etc., but he keeps building and doing things in the technology and the publishing space. Why? It's what he loves. He wants to work hard at work that he feels is worth doing. The solace that you can have when, it, when you're doing work where you don't really feel that the work has meaning in of itself, at least to you, you're, you're working for Spacely Sprockets and churning out those sprockets, or uh, you know, you're working for Cogswell Cogs and turning out those cogs, right? And you don't really care about sprockets or cogs, or whether Spacely or Cogswell wins. What is the meaning in your work? Well, until you find something else you can do, the meaning in your work is providing for yourself and your family. It's the experience you get. It's having someplace to go, something to do. But if you really want to get the best prize that life has to offer, the chance to work hard at work worth doing, it should be work that's worth doing both to society as a whole and to you personally. And that may take some real effort. It may take some risk. But I promise you, if it is the best price that life has to offer, it's probably worth it. With that, before, uh, or let's, with that, let's go ahead and get into our lineup today. Finding a new doctor with Dr. Ken Berry.
1: Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question from Andy today. Andy says, any tips on finding a doctor who is open to keto holistic options for myself and my family? Every time we go to the doctor, we walk away with frustration uh, because of pushing agendas and general incompetency. Yeah, it's a pretty common thing that people find when they go to their primary care doctor. Uh, Andy has insurance, and so he wants to utilize that as, if possible, but uh, some keto doctors are out of network. So here's the deal, Andy. I've got a YouTube video about how to find a low-carb keto doctor near you. Maybe Jack can post a link to that. Uh, several other ways that you can find a doctor who is open-minded, and that's what you're really looking for is a doctor who just is not closed-minded and is going to prescribe the medications that the, the latest drug rep told him or her to prescribe. So watch that video, and there's actually six different websites. You can put your zip code in, and it'll it'll tell you the nearest providers near you. Uh, and then also, if you have a compounding pharmacy in town that actually makes medicine the old-fashioned way, go and talk to that pharmacist and ask them, who's somebody in town that prescribes desiccated thyroid or bioidentical hormones or is just, in general, low-carb-friendly? Because that physician's going to know. And it might be one or two counties over from where you live, but I think you'll find it worth the drive. Um, Also, uh, for everybody listening, understand that your relationship that you have with your family doctor, your internal medicine doctor, your pediatrician, it's not set in stone. You can actually help your doctor open back up that closed mind. Now, it's understandable that you might not want to waste time and effort with this, but if you are kind of in a secluded area where the nearest doctor other than your doctor is 150 miles away, then it would probably be worth the effort to try to open your doctor's mind. And you can do that by sharing YouTube videos, by sharing articles, by sharing research studies that I link to on my YouTube videos. Uh Very often, it is possible to change your doctor's mind. But if that's not possible, then obviously you need to change your doctor. Hope this helps. Thanks, guys.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree with with what Ken said there. If you can open the mind of a doctor, great. But in my personal experience, doctors don't listen to patients. And I wanted to add something to this that's totally unrelated and yet related. One of the best pieces of advice that I have ever seen anywhere, let alone on social media, which is where it came from, and I don't tend to get a tremendous amount of great advice off social media, but this was maybe life-saving for somebody. This gentleman said, whenever you go see your doctor and you explain your symptoms to him or you answer a question for him, after you do that, say, please repeat to me what I just said to you. Please tell me what I just said. And that seems, you know, really kind of being pushy. But he has said that he has never once went to a doctor, explained his situation, said, repeat it back to me, and got it back the way that he said it. Not once. Now, to me, this is... This is a systemic problem, and it's not because doctors are bad people. I have two doctors right here leading off today's show on my expert panel. So I don't think doctors are bad people. I think the hours they work and the amount of shit that they have to do that's not really what doctors should be doing is such that this is a natural consequence. But that doesn't mean it has to affect you. And I've now had this discussion with my wife and said, I want you to write down what you're going to tell your doctor so you don't forget it. I want you to tell your doctor the things you need to tell them. And when you tell them something, like they ask you a question, you answer things that are not on your notes. I want you to make notes as you do that. And I want you to make sure that they repeat back to you everything you said to them, whether they like it or not. And we've already found that this is not unique to the gentleman that gave the advice. And it's just the fact that no matter how smart a doctor is, no matter how gifted a doctor is, A doctor cannot be diagnosing a patient when the doctor doesn't base the diagnosis on what the patient's actually reported. Even if that doctor says, well, this thing that they think is important is not really important, they still need to know that you've said it. If they don't even know you said it, how did they make the determination? And I think what it is is they've got a hundred things going through their mind. I understand that. I appreciate that. But when I'm paying you for your time and you're sitting in a room with me, and my health is at stake, then I don't give a shit. Sorry, I don't. And when my wife's health is at stake, I don't give a shit. I want for that 10 minutes or 15 minutes when you walked in the room backwards and you're already on your way back out, I want you to actually hear what's being said. And I want you to use that gifted mind that got you through medical school and internship and residency and all that shit to actually assess the situation and do the best you can for your patient. And I know there's probably some doctors in this audience pissed off that I'm saying this, but I'm sorry it's true. I'm sorry. We've already tested the theory since the advice was given, and it's valid. With doctors we like, by the way. With doctors we like, by the way. We keep. Keep them around. Keep going to them. Just saying. That is to this day. The single most valuable piece of advice I've ever received on social media. And it was on Parler, of all places. Anyway, with that, let's uh, go for our number two question for a doctor today. This
2: one on dealing with breech births in an off-grid situation. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and co-author of best-selling books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus contributor to the leading survival magazines and designer of -of one-of-a-kind medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Alan, who writes, Off-grid situation, how do you handle a breech baby? Situation. Interact, no power, eighteen degrees Fahrenheit. Live births triplets with first pregnancy patient one is mother was a seventeen year old local national female. Vital signs acceptable with situation until patient two presented. Patient two, first baby. Male, right leg presented first, patient three, female, head first, straight delivery, patient four, third baby, male, I can't remember which arm presented, but he was sideways. I was the combat medic and had delivered three of my own children five to nine years earlier, and I had basic EMT intro to OB. I understand everything depends on the situation, but how would you handle the situation if the nearest hospital was almost an hour away and would not be open for six more hours? I appreciate what you do for this worldwide neighborhood. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Alan. This came to mind while listening to your doom and gloom OB kit podcast. Doom and gloom, we'll have none of that here. Alan, it's doom and bloom, not doom and gloom. Doom represents the disasters that befall society, and bloom is the human being's resilience in the face of adversity. The situation you describe is a truly rare one as triplets naturally occur, that is, without fertility treatments, in only one in 8,000 human births. In normal times, this is considered non-deliverable vaginally in standard protocols, and also even in EMT manuals. Off the grid, the situation is also dire even if delivery goes well vaginally as triplets tend to deliver very prematurely and many require intensive neonatal care simply to breathe. Indeed, it wasn't until about 100 years ago that triplets and higher multiple births ended up with all surviving infancy. But you're asking about breech babies, which are actually much more common and the survival medic or midwife is eventually going to expect to encounter one of these. Breech babies occur in about 3% of all labors and are routinely delivered today by cesarean section. This is because studies have shown that about 4% of vaginal breach deliveries end up with some bad outcome, compared to about 1.5% of breech babies delivered by cesarean section. This is usually because the head comes last and is actually the largest diameter part of the baby. Sometimes it gets stuck and oxygen deprivation or other complications may occur. Most parents aren't willing to accept the extra 2% chance that their baby's going to come out with a problem. And indeed, if you look up Breach Babies online, you'll find ads for law firms. Off the grid, however, C-section is not an option in most cases, and I have personally delivered quite a few Breach Babies vaginally myself. The grand majority come out just fine. The method is somewhat different. Instead of the head crowning, it's the butt that crowns. Although the legs may sometimes come first, they usually deliver spontaneously a push or two after the butt. If they don't, a sweeping motion called the pinard, P-I-N-A-R-D, maneuver may safely bring down the feet and legs. Now, once the legs and buttocks are out, you'll use both hands to grasp the hips on the baby, thumbs on the sacroiliac, and fingers in front of the iliac crest, the bony structures in the pelvis. Now, with each push, the abdomen and cord will descend and then deliver You'll use your grip on the hips to help guide first one shoulder, the topmost one, by gently pulling down and slightly out. If the arm doesn't deliver on its own, a sweeping motion may have to be performed to move an extended arm across the chest, then down, then out. Then you would deliver the posterior second shoulder by holding the feet with both hands and exerting gentle upward traction. That leaves the entire body delivered except for the head. Now you'll move your hands to the baby's chest and back. Don't squeeze the neck. you want to keep the head flexed, which can be done by having an assistant place some pressure downward just above the pubic bone of the mother. The midwife may also place a finger in the baby's mouth, not to apply any pressure whatsoever, but to keep the head flexed. That's very important. Using the hand on the back, traction is exerted downward and outward, and in most cases, the head will deliver without an issue. Now, everything I told you is just part of the whole process. There are a lot of little nuances that help decrease the chances of complications. You'll find the whole process described in detail in a great book called Varney's Midwifery. That's V-A-V as in Victor, A-R-N-E-Y. I've got an old copy, but I'm pretty sure the newer ones still address this type of birth. I also want to say that there's more than one way to skin a cat, and there's more than one way to birth a kitten. If you're a medical professional, realize that the goal is a healthy mother and baby. Breach deliveries can be easy or they can be hard, especially with a big kid. Although trained dads like Chase may deliver their own babies at home, it's still important to have a trained midwife or other experienced medical professional there in case of trouble. They'll help. In normal times, seek modern medical care whenever and wherever it's available. Bottom line, there's no substitute for experience and I'm concerned that today's young doctors and even midwives may have little or no experience whatsoever with the vaginal breech birth. Given the legal climate, I guess I understand, but it's important to think about what you'd do if the ambulance was not on the way. This is Joe Alton that Old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, books, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget our new group called Survival Medicine on MeWe, as well as our continued presence on Facebook, Parlor, YouTube, and of course, doomandbloom.net or com. Thanks.
0: So good stuff from Doc Bones. I'll just say, you know, he said that about 3% of births are breached. Except, I'll tell you one place where they're not 3%. Any TV show about medicine, hospital shows, and stuff like that. Like, it seems like 85% of births are breach on there, and uh, like 95% of those are extremely complicated forms of breach birth, huh? Just just an observation. Anyway, uh, in all seriousness, let's move on now with a grab bag of handyman and business starting questions from Tim the Toolman Cook.
3: Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Coming to you from allseasonsmaine.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on the road to financial freedom. I'm back again this week to answer some questions from our TSP community for the Expert Council. This week I have a grab bag of three questions from two separate TSP listeners centered around income, pricing, side hustles, and full-time gigs. So let's dig right in. First question comes from Bobby. Well now... Fast forward a few months, today I was laid off and had to break the news to my wife that I don't have a job. After getting over the initial shock, I actually felt more at ease than I expected. I felt this might just be the kick in the butt to take a different path. It wasn't long after getting the bad news I remembered the podcast I listened with you telling your story, Tim. I'm considering starting a handyman business. If I knew it would work, I wouldn't even hesitate. There is some uncertainty, though, of course. Working in IT, I did make pretty good money. Is it possible to make around six figures working as a handyman? So first off, Bobby, sorry to hear that you lost your job. That unfortunately seems to be a rather familiar pattern with our economy right now. Secondly, you absolutely can make $100,000 a year as a handyman, and you can probably do it working less hours and certainly less stress than working in IT. However, making that kind of money doesn't happen all at once. You'll have to take some time to build a client base and throw a bunch of services at the proverbial wall and see what sticks in your area. To put that into perspective, if you work five days a week, you're going to need to make just over $400 a day to make $100,000. Of course, you're going to have expenses, so I'd allow for about $500 a day, and that should be more than doable. It takes a bit, but you know. Five $100 Garbage loads to the dump, there's your $500. Five window cleaning jobs that pay $100 apiece, there's your $500 a day. Mowing seven lawns at $75 apiece, there's your $500. Tons of opportunity. It's absolutely possible to make better than good money, even great money, dealing with other people's dirty jobs or working as a handyman. It just takes long, hard work to become that overnight success. So here's a second question from Bobby. After he finished up his first successful handyman job... He replied to me, he said, I just finished my first handyman job yesterday for 650 bucks. I have another opportunity to install privacy fence. The only problem is the material cost is going to be a few thousand bucks that I'd rather not put up out of my own pocket. What percentage should I ask for before getting started? And of course, I'd like to get 100%, but don't think that'll fly. I estimate material will be around 45% of the project. So congrats, Bobby, on the hustle. You are one of the many whom I've been seeing lately making money in doing all these odd services, it's great. So a few quick tips. When it's a small job, I normally supply the materials and put a markup of around 30% on them. There's money to be made on a couple hundred bucks without putting out any risk. Now, for the larger jobs, I honestly have no interest in putting out that kind of money and taking that kind of risk. I'm not a contractor, I'm just a handyman, and even spending one full day on a single location starts getting a little old for me. So that being said, you got a couple of options. You can ask for a 50% deposit up front, Use that money for the materials. That way your only risk is in the labor. Secondly, you could give the customer a list of materials, have them pay for them, and then you could pick them up for a small fee. Or third, you can have them set up an account at a local building supply store that you can, and that you're allowed to sign for temporarily and pick up what you need each time you go to the store. And one final thing, If you have them pay for the materials, which I think is probably your best option, and they're a new customer, I would still ask them for at least 25% down payment for your labor, just so you know they're serious. Better to start these type of practices early on when you're new in a small business and not take any of those unnecessary risks. Okay, another question. This one comes from Stephen. He says... Hey Tim, I hope you're doing well up there. I need your advice. I recently moved to a town of 2,000 people. I'm trying to get my handyman business going. I'm not a local, so people don't recognize my name. I have two window cleaning accounts, however, I can't get any traction. How would you go about getting customers in a small town? And thanks for your help. So Stephen, I think this is going to be more of a common occurrence now for potential handyman as more and more city dwellers move out to the small towns. My situation was just about the same. My town is about the same size and I moved here seven years ago. One of the best things I did for my handyman business was something that wasn't on purpose. Four years ago I ended up taking a job selling building supplies at a local farm supply store. I stayed there for exactly 12 months and it was the best thing as I made more connections with people than I would have otherwise. So especially when you're getting started and you don't have a ton of money coming in, You might look at taking a part-time job in an area that would get you both exposure and connections. I know this goes against everything I stand for in being your own boss, but if you look at it as a temporary step toward your financial freedom in a small town, it could be the fastest way to get your name out there. So a few other ideas. Getting on a local committee can help as well. Make some connections. It doesn't need to be anything related to handyman work, but in small towns, there tends to be the same few people on a lot of committees and doing most of the volunteering. So getting on a committee or two is a fast way to find other like-minded people who might need help with a multitude of things. And another thing that helped me a lot was when I got the decals put on my truck. The lady that owned that business shared my post on Facebook and she was the first person to call me a part of the community. Interacting on social media pages worked too. Share locally about a business that helped you or one that you appreciate, and a lot of times people will reciprocate that and share your posts. Take your card and some cookies to local realtors, drop off a business card with a quote for how much to clean windows to every single business downtown. Even if you pick up two more customers, that you just doubled your customer count. And 90% of success in small towns is all about getting seen. The more you get out there, the more you'll have people calling. The beauty of a small town is it doesn't take long to get known by that small critical mass that will be enough to support you and spread the word about your business. So that's it for me this week. If you're interested in getting more help with your service-based or handyman-style business, drop by my YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com. The subject to some of my recent Friday videos have been Five Freedoms of Being Your Own Boss, Failure is Uncomfortable, Five Small Services to Make You Big Money, and my personal favorite last month, My Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. So drop by and check it out. I would seriously appreciate it as we just hit 500 subscribers and couldn't do it without your support. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, next up, I've got a question for Derek Pietro,
0: and this one is specific to a specific vehicle. But I think the advice overall is pretty good for anyone with a late model, higher mileage vehicle, specifically one that's a diesel. And I'll come back with a few additions about diesels and how to think about being an owner of a uh, an older diesel vehicle in just a moment.
4: Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from affordabledcgenerators.com. Got a diesel question from Jesse. Let's dig into it. What maintenance should I do on a high mileage diesel truck when you're new to diesel and trucks? Question I bought my first truck last year, an 3 Sierra 3500 Dually. I'm starting to work on my own vehicles, but not sure what to look for in a diesel has over 300,000 miles and seems to be well taken care of. What are some maintenance items I should perform or look out for? I worked on cars, some in high school, but that was 20 years ago, and I haven't done anything other than oil changes and brake bleeding so far. Thank you, Jesse. All right, Jesse, let's talk about the Duramax. Well, differences in maintenance from gas to diesel engines, not a huge difference as far as mechanically working on them. They're all made of nuts and bolts. The diesel engine, aside from being just physically typically larger and beefier than a gas engine, is very much the same mechanically, but with a couple of differences, mostly in the fuel system. So a diesel engine, a modern diesel engine, is going to have a filtration system that's a little bit more complicated, and an injection system that's way more complicated than a gasoline engine, as far as costs and complexity. So typically on a modern diesel engine, You have a high-pressure lift pump, which is driven off of the engine. And this basically is going to pull fuel from the gas tank and then jack the pressure way up and push it into a set of injectors. And so it's kind of like multi-port fuel injection, jacked up to thousands and thousands of PSI worth of pressure. The other thing we've got going on is glow plugs. So instead of having a spark plug ignite the fuel, diesel, obviously, when the piston comes up, Ignites on compression. Uh, in order to do that when the engine's cold, s- most diesels are going to have glow plug systems. So basically when you turn the key on, you get that weight lamp that's going to tell you to not crank the engine over until a certain point in time. And obviously light goes out, you crank it over and fire it up. That's basically a little pin that sits in the combustion chamber and that thing glows cherry red for a couple of seconds and that heats up the air and that heats up the combustion chamber. And so when that and diesel fuel gets injected in on a cold startup, it can instantly fire the engine. The other thing we have is a turbocharger on pretty much all modern diesel engines. So other than that, the the bulk of the engine is basically the same. Now, as far as maintenance items go, a lot of it's going to be the same. You're going to be doing oil changes. You're going to be checking drive belts. You're going to be checking for leaks. All that happy stuff, as far as the rest of the vehicle is concerned, it's the same. We've got a couple other items we're going to talk about later. Now, the O3 Duramax is really one of the best years your particular model year happens to be one of the best Duramaxes Duramax is going on 20 years of production And there's some bad years like when we get into those huge catalytic converters that require DEF fluid I personally would never touch one of those own one of it or even want to work on it But your 03 is the first generation so for the first couple years of production I think until like 04 You had what was called the LB7, that's the code for your particular engine, and that kind of dictates the power output, the emissions package, and everything that fits that particular set of model years. Yours is the best one. You don't have really any kind of complex emissions components. Now, we do have a couple of issues. Those LB7s had bad fuel injectors from the factory, which probably were replaced under warranty, which was something crazy like 150,000 miles, but... You know, yours at this point might have started to fail again just because you're at the 300,000-mile mark. So part of the maintenance we're going to be looking for is making sure that the injectors are not leaking, and that's going to give you typically, like, uh, smoke on startup or just idling, or you're going to get trouble codes for, like, rich or lean conditions on either of the banks. That's the one side of the engine. So I'd be paying very close attention to the injectors. This is a huge job. I mean, I think the book is like at 15 or 16 hours to replace them. So very expensive. The injectors are over a $1,000. We always replace all eight of them. But this would be kind of a maintenance item that you may or may not want to do unless you can really, you know, take the truck down for a couple of days and get in there and start ripping the thing apart because you got to pull the valve covers off. But I would be paying close attention to the injectors, paying close attention to my fuel economy. If the injectors are leaking... Not only are we going to get smoke, you know, you're going to get away from the 20 miles to the gallon you're probably getting with the thing, and it's going to start dropping. You're also going to see fuel in the oil. So if it's running super rich and dumping tons of diesel fuel, your oil level is going to actually start to go up, and when you pull the stick, it's going to be stinky. So pay close attention to your oil level, and when you're doing the oil change, make sure it doesn't smell like diesel fuel. It's another symptom of leaky injectors. Another part of the fuel system is the fuel filter. I believe it's like a canister style with an o-ring and those o-rings can leak and that's really all diesel engines can have fuel leak issues with the filtration Um, but supposedly the lb7 or the duramax is kind of notorious for the o-ring seal leaking and so if you see a wet spot around where that o-ring seals on the fuel filter one you want to replace it because obviously you got diesel fuel leaking out but it can kind of leave you stranded if you get air in the fuel system You're going to start to get weird surging problems, or you may potentially have a long crank time, or even a no crank, like, things not going to fire. So that could potentially leave you stranded. You should be replacing the fuel filters on the maintenance interval in your owner's manual, and that's something you probably do. Obviously, there's a way to purge the filter, so once you put a new filter in, you've got to get diesel fuel into it before that pressure pump can pick up the fuel and actually start the engine. So I'm sure there's a ton of videos online you can go through that, but make sure you use a new O-ring with the filter. Glow plugs are another maintenance item that you want to keep tabs on, and if you don't know the history of them, probably want to get in there and replace them anyway, just so you know you have fresh ones. Again, this will leave you with a condition of maybe hard starting, hard starting when it's cold or no start. And uh, my old 6.2 diesel in my in my V military truck, those are notorious for swelling up, cracking, breaking, which can obviously damage the engine internally. But then also, if they swell, you can't get them out. And the LB7s are kind of notorious for stripping threads on the glow plugs because they're just in there for so long and people don't pay attention to them. It's like leaving a spark plug in an engine for, you know, 200,000 miles. Yeah, good luck getting it out. So get those replaced with genuine GM parts. Don't skimp out on there. I think you'd be in good shape. We want to just check general stuff. You know, make sure we don't have leaky turbo Um, we want to make sure that your head gaskets aren't failing. Duramaxes are kind of notorious for head gasket issues. Uh, so make sure that they're not leaking. When the unit's running, if you hold the hose, if the thing is super hard, I mean like rock hard, that means that you usually have combustion gases and pressures leaking into the cooling system and then obviously the hose is going to swell up and be super hard. So it should be kind of be spongy where you can grab it and squeeze a little bit. If it's not, you're kind of looking at like impending doom with the head gaskets. Something to keep an eye on, obviously, every time you change the oil. Pop the hood, run it, check the hoses. All right, final thing up is the cooling system. LB7s are notorious for leaky water pumps. Keep an eye on that water pump. Make sure it's not leaking. Also, make sure that the cooling fan is working correctly. Cooling system on the Duramax seems to be a weak point, so check it for leaks. Make sure we don't have any kind of crud growing in the radiator. So keep an eye on the coolant condition level. And make sure that the Duramax isn't overheating, as as that's a, a pretty common symptom of that engine when particular cooling components fail. Well, Jesse, I hope that kind of gives you an idea of what you're up against with your new Duramax. Some of these items are really just maintenance items. Some of them are more of like, keep an eye on it, make sure things aren't leaking kind of thing. And then others are like, you know, just dig in and get them replaced so you know you got fresh things like glow plugs. Good luck with the Duramax. You already got 300,000 miles on it, but realistically, as long as it's running good, it'll probably go a couple hundred thousand more. That's just the way they go. Check out affordabledcgenerators.com for an affordable DC generator power supply solution. As always, thanks guys for the questions. Take care.
0: So I don't talk a huge amount about the time I spent in the military, really. So people that maybe are newer to the show may not know that at one time in life, Jack Spierko was a diesel mechanic. That was my job in the Army. I was a heavy-wheel diesel mechanic. I worked on you know, the biggest trucks and, and material handling equipment that the military uses or used anyway back in Uh, 2000, sorry, 1990, 1993, and through that time period. So that would be things like, uh, very large forklifts and, uh, hammock trucks, five ton and above trucks, things like that. So I have quite a bit of experience with diesel. And the reason that I chose that world to work in was I didn't know what I wanted to do at that time. I was 17 years old when I joined the army. And, uh, but I did know this. I knew that if I just decided to take whatever I did in the military and do it outside of the military, that if I specialized in diesel, I'd be paid better than just about everybody else I worked with. And I really didn't know what I was going to do yet. So it was very possible that uh, I, I could have spent 20 years in the military and retired. It was very possible that I could have went back home to uh, the little coal town I'm from and, and ended up working on uh, vehicles for the coal companies. So I, I was I was thinking that way, and... Uh, What that has to do with this is having a vehicle worked on, if you're not going to do your own maintenance, this a diesel, is a little bit different than just about anything else. Because in general, when you go to a shop... They'll have someone they talk about like he's like some kind of god that only shows up a few days a week, and in some ways that may be the case. They're master diesel tech. Or master diesel tech. They're master diesel. It's the guy that's certified to work on freaking diesels, and there's plenty of people in that shop that could probably do the work, but he's paid better than them. And they don't even if someone can do the work. Part of how you retain that individual in that shop is he gets to work. No one touches a diesel but him, uh, often even if it's something like an oil change. Sometimes that's not the case, but in some shops even that would be the case. Most shops it's not that extreme, but any real you know, maintenance work, uh, something that has any kind of labor hours in it, that's going to go to the diesel tech, which means you're going to pay more money. It also means sometimes you're going to wait longer to get your work done. So we started off with a couple questions by doctors, and this this is going to sound weird, but these two things go together. If you have no real special medical needs, you probably just have a, a general practitioner doctor. And if you move to a new town, you might be a little bit about finding a new GP, but, you know, a doctor is a doctor to a degree as long as you're comfortable with them. But if you had a specific medical condition, if you needed a cardiologist, you'd probably long before you needed to see a cardiologist again, figure out the cardiologist that you should be using, or at least a couple cardiologists that would suffice as your specialist on your medical insurance or whatever in your new home. If you're going to own a diesel, I recommend you take, maybe it's not as important as needing a cardiologist, but you take sort of that same approach with you already know you're going to pay more and wait longer. So knowing a shop that can see to your needs, it maybe has more than one diesel tech or something like that might be the way to go. Now, a lot of times with like Chevy, Ford, etc. with the vehicles, if you go to a dealership for them, then you're going to have someone there dedicated. It's going to be there more frequently than some of your independent shops. You're also tending to pay more money. And then the last thing about Diesels is that they last longer and break less than everything else, but they always cost more when they eventually break or need work. And so, while I recommend anybody with an older vehicle kind of have a vehicle maintenance fund that's beyond, you know, tires and stuff like that. It's something you throw money into until there's, you know, some money sitting there in case you need injectors replaced or something. With an older diesel, I really recommend it because the beauty of this is if you do have to do a job that's a couple thousand bucks on one of these vehicles, often that'll make that vehicle fine and run beautifully for you for another five or ten years, and you're still ahead of buying a new vehicle uh, big time. I mean, I know people with diesel trucks, even Duramax is like we're talking about here, with 600,000 miles on them. I don't know anybody. I'm not saying no one exists. I don't know anybody with a truck with a gas motor with 600,000 miles on it. I just don't. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one for John Pugliano. No one to hold them. No one to sell them. Stocks, that is. John, take it away.
5: Hey, TSP, I have a couple questions I want to answer directly and then I'm going to finish up with a quick overall stock market commentary and bring you up to date on what's happening in the market and where I think it's headed. First question comes from Brad. And Brad asks, with the Great Reset coming down the pike, what kind of public companies are likely to be the big winners and the big losers? Well, Brad, as far as public companies, for the most part, I really don't think there are going to be a lot of losers and not directly with anything that comes out of the World Economic Forum. Now, I think there will be a lot of losers that are non-public companies because most of the agenda coming out of Davos and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, these are things that are really going to impact Private companies. They're going to impact the small business owner and the entrepreneur. And in fact, the reason they're going to benefit the public companies, especially the big multinationals, is because this is who this Davos World Economic Forum crowd is. They are multi-billionaires, primarily from multinational global corporations. Their agenda, like oligarchs everywhere, is to ensure that they maintain their power and their wealth. And the way they do that is by influencing public policy, public opinion, and governments to put regulations on their competitors so that the big oligarchs can stay in power and they can squelch the competition. Now, they just couldn't come out and say they're going to do that because people would be opposed to it. So what they do is they organize things like Davos and they couch it in platitudes and ways that they're going to help the environment and help people. But really, all they're trying to do is protect their power base. Now, the reason I don't get all excited about their annual meetings, or in particular about this great reset that they're talking about, is because it's nothing new. The founder of the World Economic Forum is a guy named Klaus Schwab. And old Klaus wrote a book, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. He paints a horribly maligned picture of capitalism, and then he tries to destroy capitalism. But his tune has never changed. There's nothing new about the Great Reset. The real reset, the thing that they're not talking about in public, is what their primary agenda is, and that's resetting the world back to a globalist economy. For the last maybe six or seven years, things have been going against them. They were against the Brexit and breaking away from the European Union. They were against the election of Donald Trump. They're against any of the nationalistic movements we see, particularly in Central Europe. And they've been staunchly opposed to people that seek freedom anywhere, particularly the young people in Hong Kong that are trying to put up a fight against the Chinese Communist Party. And these global oligarchs have been losing that battle for the last six or seven years. Well, now some of those nationalistic sovereignty issues are losing. Donald Trump obviously lost re-election. The globalists like that. They think that maybe the tide is turning back in their direction. And so to them, when they talk about reset... That's what they're talking about. So, hey, I'm digressing here, but in any case, short answer to your question, the reset's going to have not much of an effect on anything in terms of the stock market. To the extent it will, it'll favor the big, huge, multinational companies. Next question comes from Joey in Tennessee. He's made some great investment decisions this year, buying the dip on the COVID hysteria, and some of his positions have gone up as much as over 200%. His question is, when should he sell? You know, should he keep riding these up, or should he sell them when they start to turn down, like maybe when they go down to the 50- or the 200-day moving average? First off, the stock market doesn't care how much of a gain or a loss that we have in our particular position. So the fact that you're up a couple hundred percent on some of your stocks is irrelevant to the movement of the stock market. Now, it is important to you, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't consider that, But when it comes to actually making the decision to sell a holding, you don't want to be thinking of it in terms of your gain or your loss. You want to stay focused on the performance of that stock and whether or not that particular company is likely to appreciate in the future. And so don't be looking at your gains. Look at the particular stock. What are the fundamentals and what are the technicals that are in place that have driven that stock price up? And are they likely to keep going up? Or is that direction going to change and reverse? And the way you'll know that it's changing and reversing is not to wait until the price goes down to the 50 or the 100 or 200-day moving average to sell. In fact, those are normally the areas where you want to be buying. Because in most cases, if you look at long-term charts throughout the U.S. stock market, as long as we're not in a recession, it is almost always a winning strategy to buy the dip. And really, by definition, the dip is when that price drops down to the 50, the 100, or the 200 day moving average. Because in most cases, it finds support at those levels and it bounces up and rebounds and goes on eventually to make all time record highs. And so if you're going to be using moving averages to help you determine when to get out of a stock, I would recommend that you look at much faster reacting averages. The term is called exponential moving averages. I don't have time to get into that all right now, but you can Google that. It's easy to create charts that show you short-term exponential moving averages. And you want to be looking for something in the range of 10 to 20 days. So, you know, a 10, a 15, a 20-day exponential moving average will show you when the momentum is dropping out of a stock. And if you're going to use an indicator to time when to sell, I would suggest those exponential moving averages are probably the best thing you can use. Wait, real quick, I'm running out of time Let me give you a quick market review. We are right now in the midst of a bad second wave of the COVID virus. And what's happening? The stock market is at all-time record highs. Think about what I've been saying all year long. It isn't that I hate old people, but I said that this would be most likely a great buying opportunity. And it has been across multiple asset classes. Everything from cryptocurrency to precious metals to large-cap, small-cap stocks. Value, momentum, technology. At one time or another over this past year, there have been great opportunities to buy into all these asset classes. Now over this summer, I was worried that things were getting a little frothy. We had a lot of irrational exuberance as the economy was first reopening. The market had a big rise from the March low up into early June. And that's when I started getting concerned, especially when people were just throwing money at all the stay-at-home stocks, the things like Zoom and Peloton and driving valuations of these companies and healthcare and vaccine companies astronomically high. That all really worried me. I thought it was likely would get a pullback in the summer and then probably a substantial double dip in the fall when we were hit with an inevitable second wave of COVID during the normal flu season. Well, some of that panned out, but it never got as bad as I expected. We had about three short dips. None of them got more than about nine to maybe 10%. And I was looking for more like a 15 to 25% dip. But remember, all along I'd been saying, this is a 50-50 stock market. It's just as likely to go up as it is to go down. And the reason the market can keep on going up is because the Federal Reserve and the central banks around the world are flooding the economy with cash. Every month, our Federal Reserve is pumping in $120 billion. Think about how massive an injection of money that is. That's ultimately what's driving this stock market higher. And because I knew that, I was keeping my powder dry. I had my 50% cash position because I thought this was a 50-50 market. And I was waiting for the right opportunity to come in and buy the dip. Now, we never got as substantial of a dip as what I wanted, but I did go in about two or three weeks ahead of the election, and I bought a variety of positions. In fact, I bought 90 total stocks. I coined the phrase, the COVID-90 portfolio. These are stocks that have been out of favor. And my thesis in buying these stocks is that the worst is over. One way or another, COVID is going to burn itself out come the spring of 2021, in the summer of 2022. No one's going to care anymore. And so these stocks that have been way undervalued and have way underperformed, are going to start breaking out. And they have, in fact, done that. In fact, if you look at the month of November, not just my portfolio, but the small cap Russell 2000 had its best month on record in November. So these value stocks are breaking out. I can't predict the future. I don't know if we're going to get some pullbacks or some slowdowns along the way. But I don't care because I'm a long-term investor. And the way I look at it is that these underperforming stocks that are down, in some cases, 30 to 40%, will go back up to where they were pre-COVID hysteria. And in fact, just over the last month or so, we've seen them make up close to half or more of those gains anyways. And so while I think a lot of the easy money is gone out of these value trades, there's still plenty of room to run. And I am not at all concerned about the direction of the stock market or the general economy As we go into 2021, if you're interested in my portfolio or the things that I do, you can find all that information free of charge. It's over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com. And I'd also encourage you to listen to the wealth setting podcast. Well, Hey, thanks for the questions until next time. This is John Pugliano from the expert council.
0: So I want to take a stab at just giving you a little bit of another way to think about getting out of stocks when it comes to managing retirement based on retirement goals. It makes a lot of sense to really get conservative with some of your gains when those gains have taken enough of a upswing to cover, let's say, the next five years of your goals of your retirement. So if we can take enough of that gain and park it somewhere really conservatively and we can lock that gain in, then we've done good right we've done good like that money has done what it needed to do for us in one year over 5 years that doesn't mean we need to park it all but we might need to think about hey let's let's take a step back and sort out where to go with this money next do you see how that works uh, i've seen situations where you know someone's striving for a 10% gain if you have a 100% gain and you're going to continue contributions and things like that You've covered what that money needed to do for you for 10 years. It's a lot to risk losing. So I'm not big on jumping all out all the time. I've, I've, I've told you all at times to get out, get out, get out. And I've, I've probably stayed sometimes when maybe I shouldn't have. Um, I stayed the majority of my investments in during the downfall that came with COVID because I didn't expect it to be so bad. And I knew it would come back. And once it happened, getting out was a bad idea. And John and I both told you all that. If I had to do over again, hindsight being 2020, of course you'd dump. And that way you could have bought a whole bunch down at the bottom. A lot of people did buy in at the bottom, even if they didn't get out at the top. In other words, they they found more money and threw it in because they knew how much opportunity that had created. But do think about your gains from a standpoint of... How much work toward my retirement goals has this money now done for me? And if it's done five years or three years' worth of work, we might want to be a little more conservative when the market's at an all-time high. Just just one way to think about that. All right, so with that, I want to take this. Is going to be a pretty short one for me, um, just talking about uh, a pretty simple problem to solve for this individual and then some ways to think about solving it. If it applies to you in some way as well. Peter asked me, and I think it's the same guy that asked a similar question on Discord, so he's really looking for an answer here. Uh, Peter said, how do you store fuel if you don't have an outbuilding? Currently, I live in a townhouse with no backyard shed. Obviously, moving is a priority. But due to unexpected divorce, I'm way behind where I thought I was with prepping just a few months ago and staying near the kids as a priority. I jumped on your Briggs & Stratton generator Amazon deal recently. You're welcome. So I'm in need of a way to store fuel. I have a small deck, basically unused except for a bird feeder and sometimes setting up a temporary ham antenna. It's exposed, but it's a floor up. I could grab a tarp and put a few cans and get 30 or so gallons, I'd be worried about doing 60 due to the weight uh, without too much difficulty. But I don't know if the sun exposure proximity to the house should concern me. I also haven't been able to find a propane conversion kit for the Brick and Stratton generator. Just looking at it, I doubt a kit would be available. It doesn't involve major surgery to the plastic housing. Thanks, Peter. Um, starting out with the propane. I don't know it buys you that much. A full tank propane is pretty damn heavy in of itself. Um, when we look at gasoline being actually a little bit less than the weight of water, you're looking at about 500 pounds uh, if you were to go with, you know, it's 480 pounds roughly of, of weight if you went with that much fuel. So you're looking at 240 pounds. Plenty of big men weigh 240 pounds. I think when you say a deck, I'm thinking that what you actually mean, because uh, you said it's a floor up, is like a patio. So it's like an attached patio. You don't have like a ground floor deck. Now, most people that live in what you would call a townhouse do have a ground floor, and I'm going to save this for a little bit later for other people, but if you have any sort of yard at all, there might be another option here. Okay, But let's just say you you feel comfortable with 30 gallons of fuel. Okay. 30 gallons of fuel, and the generator you're talking about, that 4500 Briggs and Staten uh, generator, it, the fuel usage data that I was able to obtain on it is it will run for um, 16 hours on a quarter load, and a quarter load may not be much more than you're going to need because what are you going to run with it? Maybe and maybe a window AC unit, some lights, in your refrigerator. And we don't need to run the refrigerator and freezer at all times. But let's let's go to a half load, and let's imagine that the 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 fuel usage is linear meaning if a quarter load will give us 16 hours a half load will give us only 8 that's not true it will do we'll do better than 8 okay we will because there's a certain amount of energy necessary just for the damn thing to idle right so and it's not a straight linear relationship but let's just for shits and giggles do that so the generator itself holds 3.3 gallons of fuel, and if 3.3 gallons of fuel gave us eight hours, that comes out to like 2.4 um, hours per gallon of fuel. So, if you could churn to save 30 gallons of fuel, and if the generator had been empty and you just had 30 gallons of fuel, um, you'd be looking at 72 hours of continuous operation at a 50% load, and we know we'll do better than that. Let's call it 80. We'll probably do better than that, 80 hours. Um, That was a little over three days of continuous operation, and you really probably wouldn't be running continuous operation. You'd probably have the time to go get yourself some more fuel, and unless you were in the middle of a true, complete and total disaster like a hurricane or something like that, getting some more fuel probably wouldn't be that hard, especially if maybe you kept around a couple extra cans that you kept empty so you weren't worried about them, and when this initial problem occurred, you ran out and grabbed yourself another 10, 15 gallons of fuel right away. You see what I'm saying? So now we're only temporarily storing that fuel. And as the, the disaster goes away and you're like, well, now I've got extra fuel, just dump it in your vehicle until it's gone, until you have empty cans again. Now, the fire risk is real. But all things in life have risk-reward ratios. And if there's a fire in an apartment, because I know it's a townhome, but basically it's an apartment when you look at the, the structure, that's bad enough to burn your apartment, you're probably looking at total loss anyway. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't make it worse, but that's fuel stored outside. I'm, I, I'd prefer it not be there. But having some fuel set aside, and, you know, maybe you only need 10, 15, you know, even 15 gallons, three cans of gas. Now you're looking at 40 hours of of generator time. The reason I say 60 is because it's real easy to manage my program on a month by month basis. You ride a one, two, three, four, five, all the way to twelve on the can, and every month you swap out one can of gas for a new can of gas. You dump five gallons in your car, you take your car to the gas station, you take your empty can, you fill your can up, you bring it home, you put it back in a row. I mean that's it just works out that way, and I'm trying to give people a way to store enough gas to have reserved gas for their vehicle, their generator, everything that they need. So you give something up when you live in an apartment-type situation, and storage would be one of them. Now, let's look at some other ways to do this. Let's say that you you did have a ground floor and kind of a small yard. Now, you may not, but other people that are listening to this might. I'm trying to help as many people as possible. A lot of people in that situation, yeah, they'd like some sort of an outbuilding But they they plan on moving. Maybe they have an issue with whether or not they can have an outbuilding, and they certainly don't want to have to move an outbuilding. The Rubbermaid sheds of various sizes, including the ones that like places where you can't have an outbuilding, you probably don't ever have a place where you couldn't have what they call a deck box. And some of those big deck boxes could easily hold a significant amount of fuel and perform the function of getting it away from the structure, you know, a good 10, 15, 20 feet. So that would be another thing to look at. Another thing I would say to people in this situation, do you have a close friend or family member that has a situation where storing gasoline is not a a burden to them? They have an outbuilding, a shop, something like that. You might look at storing it there. Another thing that a lot of people in your situation may look at beyond the need for fuel storage. And the issue is you may find it hard to find a place where it's, okay or it's kosher for you to store fuel there but in general storage facilities uh, even a small you know five by ten storage facility um, you know a public storage type situation uh, will allow a great deal of reserves put up for you that maybe you can't fit in an apartment or something like that and if the expense injures you i wouldn't do it and in a divorce situation you may be in a situation where all expenses are injurious um but that would be another thing to look at so those are some different ways that you can mitigate it but one thing i really wanted to hit with this is just because i say you know ideally store 60 gallons of fuel in, in in 12 five gallon cans doesn't mean that if you don't do that you've somehow failed And always do the math with fuel storage. And, again, it might be the case that a couple cans of gas is just all you need here. Now, one more thing people can look at to extend this, and this is a dramatically safe way to do it because the regulations are such that it has to be safe. I would say it's no more dangerous than driving your vehicle anyway because you have a gas tank in your vehicle. If you own a pickup truck, you might want to look at the truck toolboxes that are like a small uh, less depth toolbox on the top and on the bottom they're actually a fuel tank they can range anywhere between able to handle uh, 30 to 60 gallons of fuel now again what we talked about you're at close to 500 ish pounds with 60 pounds of fuel so if you have you know a half ton truck technically you're looking at a thousand pound cargo load you put 500 pounds of it right behind the cab right? You've kind of used up half of the cargo capacity of the truck. But even 30 gallons of fuel is a lot of extra fuel. And some of those are made so that they're designed where they can be installed professionally and they can actually, you flip a switch and all of a sudden that fuel goes from that tank into your main tank and it's a reserve tank. So it's like having two tanks for the vehicle itself. The less expensive ones, though, basically have a pump. That pump can either be something that works with a hand crank or it can run off the battery of the vehicle. And that way you can use that reserve fuel to fill up other vehicles. A lot of times the construction sites are used with diesel, uh, specifically the red dyed off-road diesel for, like, fueling up backhoes and stuff like that. That's, that's where I first came across them because when we were doing underground construction, we had them for all the trucks so that we could keep all the machines running because once you set up something like a directional boring machine, you do not want to move it unless you absolutely have to. There's money sunk in that setup. So you don't want it to go anywhere. You want to be able to constantly refuel it without sending guys down the road with five-gallon camps. So that if I didn't own a diesel truck, because the only thing I own that's diesel now is my truck, if I had a gas truck, I probably would have already done this, because then I've got extra gas for the truck, I got extra gas for the cars, I got extra gas for the generators, etc. So if you're a truck owner and you have the funds for it. And you don't mind that the toolbox looks a little bit different. It's got a little thing sticking up out of it and what have you. That's a way that you can add fuel storage to what you're doing uh, no matter where you live. And it's not something that your apartment landlord or anything can say much about, right, because it's just your vehicle. And, again, they are inherently safe. Uh, they have to be. They're designed with vehicle codes and everything in mind. So those are some ideas that I have. If you have any ideas on how you can extend your fuel storage and get more out of it when you're in this type of apartment dweller situation. I've had a lot of questions about apartments over the years, and I've tried to answer them the best I can, but I mean, the reality is I can only do so much when your problem is a lack of space and availability for storage. And so... My number one suggestion is if you have a close friend or family member that can allocate some space for you for storing additional things, that would be something I would rely on. And then that way, you're doing a good thing in return as well. Like, if there's a problem there, there's no reason that your reserves can't be used by them, assuming you don't need them, and simply replaced. And that's a good way to kind of share preparedness as well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that one of the ways you can really help support this show and the work that we do is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. This is a time of year a lot of shopping gets done, so you can always start there and help us out. And a reason it's a lot of shopping getting done, we all know, because Christmas is coming and gifts. The item I have today for you, if you're a music enthusiast, um, or a podcast enthusiast it'd be something you might be interested in it also makes a great gift um, I, I came with last week that Anchor has a lot of stuff on sale and I love Anchor I know I sound like a broken record but the reason I love Anchor so much is not only has Anchor always served me well and I own a lot of Anchor product I always have and I will buy more Is because when I look at my sales records over five years of doing T-SPAS now and I look at all the Anchor product I've recommended and all the sales I have I've sold over 10,000 items with the Anchor brand. I have occasionally heard from somebody, hey, I got my product. It was dead in the box, didn't work. Uh, And I mean very rarely. Or the freaking male person kicked it over the fence like a football and damaged it. But it always comes with, and I contacted Anchor and they took care of it. That's a hell of a thing in 2020 have a company in the electronics business that's selling in the discount price range, but a top-quality product, and never fails to stand behind their product. That's why I love Anchor. And what they have on sale today, and it's a limited-time deal. I'm going to click the link right now while I'm saying this to make sure it's still there, and it is because I don't know what limited-time deal means. It doesn't say lightning deal or one-day deal. It just says limited-time deal. Uh, they're not arriving until the 10th of December is what my, my Amazon says. Of course, I'm not logged in. Sometimes when you log in on Prime, it, it, it'll get there faster. But that's plenty of time for Christmas. But they are the Soundcore Life P2 True Wireless Earbuds. I mentioned them on the sale going on on all anchor items last week, and they weren't this cheap. They were like 40 bucks or something. They normally sell for $50. Um, these, to me, are right on par with uh, the Apple AirPods, that sell in like the 120 range. So the case, you know, they're wireless headphones, but the case plugs into a wire. It's not like a wireless charging case or something like that. But they they give you uh, 40 hours of playtime per charge. The, the headphones themselves, the earbuds, give you seven hours. But you put them back in the case, and they can charge from the case. And the case holds 40 hours of charge per, you know, being plugged in. If they're dead... And you, you charge them for five minutes. you get a couple hours of play time out of them from dead. So that's pretty cool. I own these myself. I really like them. They're designed a lot like the airpods, except they're black and I like that. and I'll tell you why and it's a little juvenile, but I bet you many of you have thought of it the, the same way, and some of you won't know what I'm talking about. But if you've ever seen the movie, there's something about Mary. When I see a dude walking around with the white airpods with the stripe down, it makes me think of a certain scene in that movie. I'm just saying, when you see them in black, it doesn't. They have four total microphones, two in each. They're crystal clear for calling. They're on sale for $36, dollars thirty five ninety nine. To me, they are absolutely, I wouldn't just say on par with $120. They're on sale right now. The Apple AirPods, they're only $150 on sale for $120. they are not on par with those. They're better. They have better sound. They have better quality. They're IPX7 waterproof. That means if they're in water... For up to 30 minutes, up to a meter deep, that's three feet for us here in America, they're fine. And at $36, bucks, they are stupid cheap. And I really, really recommend, if you need a set of earpods or you're going to do something like this for a gift, that you look at these. The way I put it is, if you know these exist, and you buy Apple AirPods for 120 130 bucks or more, you hate money. Plain and simple, you hate money. There's no reason to do it. Don't do it. Don't be that person. I also have in the write up today a set from Anchor, also called, that are called the Soundcore Liberty Neo. Now these are actually the next level down in the product line, and um, they normally cost about ten bucks less. But since the other ones are on sale, they're actually like five bucks more. The only reason I bring them up is these don't have kind of that. That stick coming down the side of your head, they're more compact, and some people just like them. At $40, bucks, they are a hell of a deal, too. You can't go wrong with either one of them. You can check them out today, but remember, if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help me out no matter what you buy. And again, Anchor, I'm telling you, I've sold 10,000-plus Anchor items, and I'll have a mad customer one, an electronics business in 2020. That's a hell of a thing, and if you like music and podcasts and you do, you wouldn't be listening. This is just a great way. You charge them for 10 minutes to get an hour of listening time if they're totally dead. I don't know what else you could look for. And Again, the quality from the microphones on a phone call, the person will not know that you're on a headset. They'll never know. They're that good. Uh, check them out today. And again, anytime you shop at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you buy. A couple of quick announcements I want to throw here at the end for you. Number one, um, I know some of y'all aren't big on social media, but if you do use social media and you like cryptocurrency, we have a new cryptocurrency group on, on MeWe. It's called the Cryptocurrency Practical Discussion Group. I'll put a link in the show notes today. Right now, let me check so i give you the right number. We have 502 members. It's been online for three days. Uh, that is a, a rapidly growing large group for MeWe. MeWe is you know nowhere near as big as Facebook. I think they have about 11 million members total. Uh, but 500 of them, most of them from the TSP community, are discussing cryptocurrency in a practical way on MeWe. And if so if you think MeWe is nothing but a right-wing echo chamber, you ain't going to get no right-wing echoes when you're talking about cryptocurrency. You're going to talk about cryptocurrency. So you might want to check that group out. And I also want to remind you, Saturday morning's Miyagi Mornings podcast recap comes out. And uh, you can check that. That's right in the regular TSP feed. It just will be numbered differently. It will be Episode 3 this week. And, again, I apologize for last week where I put it out, but I didn't link to the damn audio file, so it didn't go out in the podcast feed. Uh, but you can also catch Miyagi Mornings on Odyssey or on YouTube. as a daily uh, you know, 5- to 10-minute video segment you can share with your friends and family. And uh, lastly, uh, SecureCoop uh, that is uh, done by a long-time uh, TSP listeners. It's been a long time in the making. It's a product that allows you to put an automatic door on your chicken coop but also get alerts to your phone when it opens, when it closes, when something goes wrong. They're now an MSB discount provider, and it's a really cool product uh, you might want to check that out. Christopher's done a great job with developing that product, and it's now in the MSB. And I've got another MSB discount coming for you that will be out on Monday for a CBD product. Uh, it's a CBD and other things within the cannabis legal cannabis world. Um, it is a fantastic product line. I meant to have it done for you this week. I had to go back and forth with the owner on a couple things with some issues. We had just revamped his site right when I was ready to move forward with him, and had some issues with the shopping cart. So we got that rectified. Everything's working just fine. I just need some time to get it together, uh, and we'll have that out for you as well. So we continue to increase the value of the MSB as well. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is a really great song for this year. It's called Be a Light by Thomas Rhett, and it's kind of got an all-star lineup in it. It's also featuring uh, bit parts from Keith Urban, Chris Tomlin, Hillary Scott, and Reba McIntyre. And boy, they really use all of these people well. they are pieces where they come in and you hear their part and are like, oh, I know, that's Reba. Uh, they really hit the notes well. There's one part of this song in kind of a chorus where it's a la-la-la-la-la moment. I, if I was arranging music, I'd have just left that out. It's not my thing. It's only a little piece of it. But, I, of course, I'm not professionally arranging music, so what do I know? Uh, but the song is great. My line drop that I put out today, and I put line drops out on social media all the time. But the line drop today was, in a race that you can't win, slow it down. Yeah, you only get one go-around. Because the finish line is six feet in the ground. In a race you, just, you, you can't win, just slow it down. And don't let that make you think this is a downer song it's really not it's a very uplifting song it's about all the shitty things in the world and how you can be a light for people and it's a very very uplifting song but i love that that stanza in it because that is about making the most of your dash making the most of your dash is very very inspiring but it also comes with a level of finility It comes with a a certain amount of an understanding about fatalism that we all end up done. We all have a terminal illness called life. Life is terminal. And that's why we need to value the time we have so much and do so much with it. Because we can't win that race. In other words, going faster, pushing harder all the time won't make us live longer. We have to balance doing that so that we're getting more out of the time we have with actually taking the time to make sure we're doing things that matter. Otherwise, like the video I did today, and I said you can be a fly in a window. Working harder does not always equal getting better results. And that fly in that window, the best thing he could do is slow it down, assess the situation, and realize, hey, stupid, that's glass. Stop doing that. Of course, flies aren't good at that. They don't understand glass, so they keep working harder, working harder, working harder. And then sooner or later, you walk over to the windowsill, and upside down and stiff as a dead fly. It wasn't for lack of effort. it's 'cause because he was working too hard at the wrong thing. In a race you can't win, slow it down. Yeah, you only get one go round, because the finish line is six foot in the ground. In a race you can't win, just show it down, slow it down, and be a light, folks. Be a light for the people in your life. Be a light for the people that need your help. With that, has been Jack Spirico wishing you a great weekend with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
5: In a time full of war, be peace. In a time full of doubt, just believe. Yeah, there ain't that much difference between
2: you and me. Time for the war will be peace in a world full of